Hey guys, welcome back to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today's episode is Tactical Med Part 2. So if you guys were tuning in to last episode, Part 1, we had Kevin, a firefighter paramedic who was also a former Marine who served in that same capacity and shared his experiences and what he thought that you guys needed for Tactical Med, period. We also had Kurt. You know, Kurt is a member of Team Philcraft. He's, he, he does training and operations for Philcraft but he's a former sniper and former special operations guy that I served with. And he shared a story about a mass casualty that he experienced that had a lot of good lessons learned. So I encourage you guys, if you haven't heard part one, please just take the time to listen to part one and learn from these guys' experiences. Today's episode is gonna be a good episode because we're gonna recap some things we talked about as far as the actual equipment that you need. And also Kevin's gonna share his story with us of his first call out as a paramedic firefighter with the Marine Corps. It's a harrowing story, but it has a lot of lessons learned, a lot of things that you can take away. So hope you guys enjoy. All right, so I got Kevin and Kurt co-located with me. Uh, what's up, guys? What's going uh, on, everybody? <laughs> hey, so <laughs> bouncing back into this part two episode, you know, we, we actually had some lull time in between these two episodes, but one of the things that we had talked about last episode was the you know mass casualty that you were involved in, Kurt? And there was a lot of lessons learned, and hopefully, we had a lot of good takeaways from you know the hard lessons that you guys learned on the objective in Iraq during that mass casualty drill. So appreciate you sharing that with us. Absolutely. You know when we talk tactical med, there's a whole bunch of considerations. One consideration is we're not just talking about tactical, the implementation of med or treatment of trauma in the tactical realm tactical space. You know, this isn't just about gunshot wounds, combat related casualties. We're talking survival as well, because this could happen to you at any time. Like Kevin said last episode, you're more than likely based on his experiences and really any paramedics experiences, more than likely to be involved in an accident, cutting your hand on a chainsaw, just silly stuff that we go through daily than anything else. But you are your own first responder. So if, if you're on you know, you're in your backyard and you cut your foot off with your lawnmower drinking a Coors Light, <laughs> then <laughs> it's on you to provide your own treatment. If you don't know how to do that, you potentially are going to catastrophically uh, injure yourself even further or potentially lose your life yeah, or the, something. Similar. The consequences of that are they just get greater as time goes if you don't know how to treat yourself. Yeah, they compound, compound themselves. You know, I hear horror stories and I, I read articles on survival stuff of people just having small silly stuff happened to them and they wind up dying because their lack of understanding or training basic knowledge basic knowledge not not to even talk about you know the what happens under stress when you have to work through these processes so you know when talking about stress talking about trying to address trauma in a situation kevin has a really unique story about his first call out as a marine firefighter paramedic it's a lot of words you know i didn't even know this but in the military they have firefighters and paramedics that are on the bases that deal with all the issues that take place on base, which if you're stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, is a lot. Everything from Joe's beating the hell out of each other to Hilo and fixed wing aircraft crashes. Yeah, everything. Everything. So it's, it's a very unique environment. So, mm -hmm. you know, Kevin, I appreciate you coming on once again. First of all, for people who don't know you, Kev, can you tell us a little bit about your background and then... Tell us what you currently do now. Yeah, my name is uh, Kevin Falk. I'm uh, with Devil Doll Consulting. 
I am uh, currently a firefighter paramedic with uh, Bavard County Fire Rescue. <clears throat> I've worked there just a little over 16 years, and I'm currently assigned to the uh, Hazmat Tech Rescue Station uh, within the county itself. So you own Devil Dog Consulting, right? Correct. What do you guys do at Devil Dog Consulting? Uh, we teach uh, tactical medicine. Uh, we, we work with law enforcement and military. We also teach uh, bleeding control to just the average citizen. Like you were saying uh, just a little while ago, uh, you're more likely to be involved in a crash or be involved in uh, a cutting accident just in your in your kitchen, whether you're uh, cutting meat or vegetables or, or fruit. The- <laughs> Did you have to mention fruit? <laughs> Because you're like cutting meat, vegetables, and then uh, let me not discriminate against fruit. Sorry, yeah. just, continue. just continue. Fruit, fruit may want to be cut as well. Um, <laughs> but the, the reality is, is you know, most of your average citizen are are not going to be involved in a firearms accident. Um, you know, statistics just prove that to be uh, highly unlikely. Not saying that it can't happen, but it's more likely that you'll just have an accident around the house. Like you said, whether it be you're uh, drinking a couple of cold ones while you're cutting the grass and your foot gets ran over or just any kind of household accident like that. Or even coming upon uh, traffic crashes or other things that are happening to other people, you're more likely to need your trauma slash medical supplies in that. So you guys are teaching tactical combat casualty care and and. You know, for people out there who are looking to do this kind of training, this isn't just exclusive for military or law enforcement or paramedics professionals. This is for everybody, right? Correct. Yes. And that's what uh, the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians, the NAEMT, they are who actually came up with the concept of bleeding control. And it's bleeding control for for citizens, basically, for somebody that doesn't have any type of medical training in the military or law enforcement or in the fire rescue realm. Uh, it just teaches the average citizen how to use tourniquets, how to use hemostatic and hemostatic gauze to uh, to stop the bleeding. And that's basically that's a big campaign that, you know, whether you like them or not, Obama's administration actually kicked off that campaign. It was. Uh, and so it's it's something that uh, that hopefully will continue. And like I mentioned last uh, podcast, it's it's kind of like the CPR for the 2000s now is bleeding control. So, yeah, and when you talk about that, it's, it's a, it brings up good points because, number one, there's always been a fear, right, of the reprisal or the lawsuit or the liability that's associated with helping somebody. And we're not just talking about self-aid. We're talking about what we call in the military buddy aid. You know, Kurt brought up this point, but I think it's important to mention is it's everybody's civil, it's, it's, especially in our minds, civil responsibility to be responsible for, number one, treating themselves, but treating their fellow citizen. And, you know, if you're trying to do this type of training, you're not just doing it for yourself and for your own family, but you're doing it for your fellow citizen that you might come upon in an accident, right? That's correct. So if somebody wants to contact you and get a hold of you and conduct training with you, is there an email or point of contact? Yeah, there's an email. It's uh, info at deviledollconsulting.us. Um, if you ever need any training, feel free to, to give that email address. Uh, an email. <laughs> yeah. So email address, giving an email address is the action of uh, emailing. So yeah. don't, int- don't call that email address. <laughs> yeah. If you call that, you might not get an answer. So what's interesting about your uh, devil dog consulting, it's really original because 
devil dogs come from wrinkle, right? It's like tradition. In the Correct. Uh, that's they got the uh, name from the Germans when they were fighting them in France in the uh, Battle of Bella Woods and a couple of other battles. Uh, it was given uh, Tufelhunden, which was German for hounds of hell, and then that's that's where the term devil dog came from. That's pretty cool, man. That's I always like names that are tied into lineage, you know. Like Philcraft, there's no lineage there. We just Googled it, <laughs> and it was available. So we're like, oh, yeah, money. Yeah, what the heck? <laughs> so but your, your stuff is pretty cool. And that, and that ties us in to filling the gap of the conversation at hand, which is you didn't start this in you know the civilian sector. You started this in the military, right? You did this for a living in the military. Right, I did. Um, I, when I went in the Marine Corps, I went in as a uh, crash fire rescue so I was stationed at uh, MCAS New River, which is in Jacksonville, right across the New River from Camp Lejeune. While I was assigned there, I uh, held the position of driver and rescueman. And uh, I also went to EMT school when I was there. Um, it, it, in the Marine Corps, the Navy does all the medical, so you don't have that many guys that are, that are trained medical within the Marine Corps. Uh, I, I saw a need. To have a couple medically trained personnel within our crash fire rescue division. So I went to EMT school, which gave us the capability to have some medically trained personnel within our unit. So that leads us into the the story of your first experience, because did you actually have this experience right after EMT school? Yes, it it turns out that it it was about two, two to three weeks after I graduated EMT school. There was a big combined arms exercise in May of 96 there at Camp Lejeune, uh, and it wound up being a couple of helicopters landed in the middle of the night. Uh, They loaded troops up. There were a couple of attack helicopters that were circling the LZ, uh, giving them uh, fire support while they were loading their troops. And as the second uh, helicopter, which was a CH-46, as it lifted off the uh, one of the H-1 Cobras, which was the attack helicopter, hit it from the underside of the helicopter about 800 feet up in the air. Uh, when that happened, obviously, uh, they both kind of plummeted to the earth, um, and that was about 2.30 in the morning. So we, we got the call around around that time, uh, loaded, loaded some of our gear onto a helicopter who took us to the LZ uh, where, near where they had crashed, and we made our way through waist-deep swamp, so you can imagine your wearing your, your firefighter gear, walking on waist deep swamp. In the middle of the night. Right. In the middle of the night, I was from Alabama. I'd never walked in the middle of the swamp at, at night. So, um, and, you know, then we didn't have the cool LED lights that we have now. We had those old right, right angle lights that you had on your uniform that were uh, the worst halogen light that you could ever possibly fathom that you couldn't see anything. So the the first helicopter, the the attack helicopter, when we came to that, those guys were, were apparently dead in that. So we, we tracked over about 500 yards uh, to the left of that crash, uh, whereas the, uh, the CH-46 uh, landed in the mud. And when it landed, the cockpit twisted off of the helicopter and was laying about probably 20 meters in front of it. And then the main body of the helicopter actually fell into the uh, fell into the mud upside down. So when we got there, the first the first person that we came upon was the uh, co-pilot. He was actually just kind of standing by the tree, and uh, kind of had a thousand yard stare and a daze about him. We start we talked with him for a second, 
Um, he so won. he was so he was standing like he would he wasn't injured. Right. He was he actually got himself out of the helicopter, and his only injury wound up being uh, a non-displaced tib fib fracture. So he actually, with help, walked to the LZ with a couple of guys. Um, so the the pilot that was in the helicopter itself, um, it took us a couple of hours to get him out. And I believe, um, if I remember correctly, I want to say that he he lost an arm and a leg in the experience after it was all said and done and then medically retired. Um, and then the guys that were in the back, the uh, 12 guys that were in the back, they were they were all deceased. So uh, the it, it turned from, you know, a, an hour or so of, of emergency medical treating those guys, getting them, getting them packaged and ready to, you know, if you count when the crash happened, it was almost a 16 hour operation that, uh, you know, in, in May, you guys have been in North Carolina. So you can imagine in May yeah. being in the middle of a swamp, you know, during, during the day, you got the smell of jet fuel, you got the smell of the earth, the swamp, and then you get the smell of, you know, human flesh that's starting to decompose because it's so warm in, uh, in that. So when it was all said and done, how many casualties were there total? It was, uh, I want to say it was 14 casualties total because of the two, the two pilots from the uh, Cobra and then the 12 that were in the back of the helicopter. I teach EMT and paramedic at the state college. And, and I use this story to tell them that, you know, this was my first call. That was my first call as an EMT after I became an EMT was going to a crash where, you know, 12 12 guys lost their lives. So, you know, I joke about it, even though it's not a joking matter. I joke about it with the students and say, you know, that if that's my first call, it's got to get better from here. You know, when you, your first call is a mass cow with 12 guys that lose their lives. So I imagine that at the time you were young and inexperienced. Right. I was, I was very young. I was uh, 20, 20 years old or 21. It, just shy of my 21st birthday because I was born in 75. So just shy of my 21st birthday. Well, so what was going through your mind, man? Like when you, when you got there and the realization that, you know, you're, you're driving inbound, you're kind of executing all the training, uh, whether it was methodology or rehearsals that you've gone through. And now you're actually going on to a live scene, which is one of the most catastrophic things that happened in that area. What's going through your mind? Uh, the first thing you start thinking back all those all those times you might have dozed off and wasn't paying attention in class that maybe maybe you should have paid a little more attention because, like I said, with with the Marine Corps, you know you don't have that many medically trained personnel, so there was nobody to look to my left or right to ask them, hey, what what do you think about this? Because nobody else knew what to think about it. It was, uh, you know, there were uh, a couple of corpsmen uh, that was there as well, so it was it was. Literally, it was a baptism by fire. You know, your first call is something like that. And, you know, you, you have to jump right in and go go to it. So when you get there and then you, you're going through and you have to, you know, like you said, you that baptism by fire, you, you just have to execute. And you're going through the motions of, of treating people. Was there any technical moments where you where you realize, like, I'm in the moment, I'm going through and executing a specific skill set? If so, what were the the things that you were going through? Like that when you assessed the casualty, was it the assessment? Was it putting on a tourniquet? What were the uh, processes? Um, yeah. So obviously back then, you you know that was uh, that was right about the time you guys were were in the military. You know, in the in the nineties, that was still when uh, tourniquets were taboo. 
you know, you didn't put tourniquets on. You were always taught if you put a tourniquet on, you're going to lose the limb. So don't put a tourniquet on. Uh, so, you know, we didn't even carry um, commercialized tourniquets weren't even available at that time. Uh, there were no injuries. The uh, the one pilot, obviously, like I said, he he, he was helped and uh, actually walked himself out with with another member of uh, the fire department. And then the uh, the major, we were able to uh, get him on a stretcher. They didn't have any type of injuries that were that were immediately life threatening. As far as you know, uh, you learn in EMT school your basics: airway, breathing, circulation, um, and then like you like you talked about uh, last episode, March as well. So there, those are some basic concepts that you can use whenever you're first assessing your casualty or your patient, and. From there, it was just getting getting the one, the two surviving guys from the crash out and on their way to further medical care. How, how did you assess the casualties that were uh, that were actually deceased? I mean, when you come upon somebody, you know, is there a a check to to ensure that they're alive? Do you, you know, we're taught in special operations that we give a uh, sternum rub. a sternum rub. Um, because they could be unconscious or they could be in pain. How do you assess casualties? So, so the the two casualties that were in the helicopter that we first came to, they were apparently dead because when it when that helicopter crashed, it caught on fire. Um, so it kind of it kind of burned those guys beyond recognition. So it, there was no no assessment of that. Um, and then all the guys that were in the back of the helicopter, it actually took us. I want to say it was a couple of hours it actually took us to get enough equipment in there to be able to actually start cutting into the helicopter because what happened is when it when it hit in the uh swamp it actually sunk a couple of feet so you you actually you know the swamp kind of sucked it kind of sucked the helicopter right into it and uh so we had to actually get some of our tools to cut holes in it and I mean, when we got there, we were obviously any little hole that we could knock out and try to get in there. You know, you would you would shake the guys, you know, get whatever part and uh, wiggle them to see if if you literally if, if they had uh, any life. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think that hopefully all those guys kind of died instantly because that would be that's a rough way to die to get hit 800 feet up in the air. You know, you have you have that much time to think about what's happening before you, before you hit the earth. What, what is it? What do you think was the uh, cause of death for the guys in the back? Was it blood force trauma? Um, yeah. And that's, that brings up a good point. I tell people not only was that my first call, but I literally seen any type of injury that you can possibly fathom. Um, I, I got to see there were, uh, the guy that was the uh, door gunner, um, the helicopter actually fell on him. Half of him was outside the helicopter. Half of him was inside and it was on the part where the helicopter actually caught on fire on the outside. So it burnt his upper torso to the bones. Um, so all that was left of him was his lower torso. There were, uh, there were guys that were decapitated, cut in half at the waist, missing an arm, missing a leg. Um, one of the guys that was in the back of the helicopter, and it's funny that I remember it, it was, uh, he was actually an army guy. He was coming out of the field and uh, there was actually uh, no visible wounds on him. Like as, as, as we got to him later on in the day and we're pulling him from it, he had almost like no bruise or scratch or nothing on him. It was just, he was just dead. Can you speculate what you think the cause of death was? 
I meant with all those guys, you figure blunt force trauma just for the fact that, you know, it got hit 800 feet in the air and it probably was rotating, you know, slinging the guys around in the back as it was rotating, uh, plummeting towards towards the earth. And then obviously you would have that violent uh, collision with the earth when you fell from 800 feet up in the air. I'm sure you guys, you know, both being airborne guys, you know, you've seen guys that's parachutes don't open. You know what happens whenever you plummet that far and you you hit the earth. It's just multi-system blunt force trauma. What about the pilots? What what why do you think the? Because when I think about that story and you you tell me about it, I always am trying to figure out why people live and why people perish. Why why do you think the pilots survived and almost unscathed? Um, I think the pilots probably survived because. Those guys, um, if you remember from your, your time riding in helicopters, those guys have like a five-point harness that they're in, kind of like your modern... Suspension seat. Yeah, right, your, race mo- car, right? your modern-day race cars. So they're, they're more well-protected than the guys in the back, normally the guys in the back. At best, maybe sometimes there might be a seat belt. Usually nobody actually puts them on when you're in the back. So that's, that's unfortunate. One of the, uh, uh, I guess you could say hazards of riding in the back of the helicopter is you're kind of unsecured per se most of the time. Now, I'm sure that you guys had some institutional lessons learned in that whole experience, but, but you know, between TTPs or tactics that you guys utilized, equipment, the way, the protocol in which you guys reacted and responded, what are some hard lessons learned that you guys changed institutionally t- for the better? Um, I know one of the things that, that they changed, um, I don't know if they still have it implemented, but one of the uh, tasks that made it hard even getting, as the day went on, getting support gear in was, you know, when you have a helicopter that crashes in the middle of a swamp, you know, you don't want every person coming to that crash to have to wade through waist deep swamp. So what happened is they wound up calling uh, some of the engineers from Lejeune, the engineer battalion, and they actually brought plywood and they were sitting plywood on it. So you've got kind of the surface tension. You've got the surface tension of the mud and everything like that. You sit that plywood and it kind of distributes your weight out. So instead of having a slush through the uh, swamp, we were able, they made almost plywood, uh, I guess you could say walkways to the, uh, to the, to the crash site itself. Did you guys, what about your equipment protocols? Did something, anything change in your equipment? I want to say that, uh, I got out towards the end of, uh, 96 and, uh, whenever I got out, I helped put together almost like a little first responder bag. Cause we really didn't, you know, being in the Marines, you know, not having a medical section per se. Um, I was able to, uh, look at like a little first responder bag, kind of like the one I'm using for this concept, a little red one to just have at least some basic supplies to where if somebody has any type of injuries or things like that, you can at least start and begin to, uh, to fix them and, uh, make sure that they have the airway breathing circulation going. That, that's crazy. Cause I remember doing in the beginning of the army, doing medical training and a cravat was like the only thing in your first aid kit. And now it's become almost this robust, you know, IFAT kit that saves lives. Why do you think, I mean, at that time period, was it just because we weren't experiencing the amount of casualties? It's, it's funny that you bring that up because in the civilian sector, when we're teaching people, you always hear, you know, you still have all the civilians that, that haven't uh, kept up on all the, all the up and coming uh, trauma treatments. And, you know, a lot of civilians still think, oh God, you can't put a tourniquet on. They're going to lose their limb if you put a tourniquet on. Um, well, the sad reality of that is, is that 
that thought process came from the Civil War. We were using Civil War technology to about 03 or 04 because used to in the Civil War when guys would get shot in the arm or leg or wherever they would put tourniquets on those guys. Well, one of the first problems they did is it was almost like a garrote. So it was real thin, real thin wrap. So it put a lot of pressure on, on that tissue. Severed the skin. Right. It, it would almost sever the skin. And then the guys, you wouldn't, you know, you didn't have the modern day vehicles and equipment to get you to the hospital. So you could have guys that would have a tourniquet on for a day, two days, three days. So as we know, obviously, if you have a tourniquet on that long, you're, you're definitely going to lose your limb. Uh, so looking back on that experience, you know, you had mentioned to me about the helicopter pilot and he had retired and some things that happened afterwards. What are some reflections on that experience? You know, looking back on it, it, it was it was the worst call, even to this date, as far as a lives lost, it's still the, the worst call that I've ever been on as far as the amount of people dying at one time. You know, I've ran some other calls in my career where, you know, families have, have died in car crashes. You know, you take out a whole family in a car crash. But, uh, you know, you, you try to look back on experiences like that and learn from them and share your experiences with other people so they can learn from your experiences just like you guys do with the whole uh, survival training and mindset. You want other people to learn off your experiences. And my, you know, some of the take backs that I have from it is uh, every every time we go out now, you know, I've even showed you guys the little bleeding control kit that that I have that my company makes. I, I, I don't ever go anywhere without that because I just can't, I can't see having all this training and knowledge and then I go out and don't have anything to apply the training or knowledge. Yeah, so a lot of experiences, a lot of lessons learned, you know, Something that just occurred to me just hearing you say that is a lot of people don't understand that first responders, you know, police, fire, EMS services, they experience a whole realm of this saturation. They're immersed in casualties and, and loss. What kind of coping mechanisms have you maybe maybe it was just something you learned through the process. But what are, what are the things that you do to make sure because your wife's a police officer too. Correct. Right? Yes, my wife's been a police officer for over a decade. Now. I mean, you you got a, a household full of uh, first responders and potential loss that you guys have seen. How do you guys deal with that? That brings up a good point. Whenever we had that crash in May of '96, uh, we actually had a critical incident stress management debriefing. So we had a, or I'm sorry, critical incident stress debriefing. I think that that is a key. Um, me and Kurt the other day were talking about PTSD and traumatic stress and the way that it affects the body. You have to have those coping mechanisms set in place. Um, there's even just information sheets that are out there uh, that the International Critical Incident Stress Management, uh, CISM, they have, a, they have a website. You can look that up. And it even just has a, a sheet that tells you, you know, when you experience a traumatic event, you're going to have you're going to have these things physically, emotionally, cognitively, and even spiritually that happen to you. Uh, and, and you just have to know, um, like I was telling Kurt the other day, um, I helped start uh, the CISM team at my fire department, and we're trying to get it rolling. And the biggest thing that I tell people is that you're a normal person having a normal reaction to an abnormal event. Uh, so it's normal, you know, when you when you go to a mass cow, whether it was Kurt's situation or mine or, or other people out there, it's normal to have that feeling of being overwhelmed or feeling that you didn't do enough to help. Um, those are normal feelings that, that people get when you're put in those kind of stressful situations. 
And even though even though we're uh, in an alpha male dominated field where nobody wants to ask for help, that's been uh, the biggest thing the past couple of years in the fire service. We've had a couple of uh, battalion chiefs with uh, close to me there in Central Florida that have committed suicide, and it's kind of been an eye opener for the first responder community in that area to realize that you know you you are your brother's keeper. It's it's up to you to make sure that your brother beside you and in front of you and back of you is good and 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 ask people don't don't wait for them to tell you that they have a problem ask and, and talk talk about those things and and have and have procedures set in place that you're able to get guys help and give them the information they need before something happens yeah it sounds like understanding the process is part of the coping mechanism process like the more you know the more education you have maybe analytically uh, you could identify the stressors that are happening to you uh, in your daily life. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, knowing knowing all that of what you you know, basically what you just said when when you know that you're you're able to process those thoughts and feelings better. So you're you're able to deal with them and them not turn into unhealthy habits or mannerisms that that become a part of who you are. I could see those understanding that and then you know, guys who are dealing with the stressors try to deal with them uh, mechanically and they, they do things like drink booze because they think it's going to make them better, but they compound the issue, right? Right. You have a lot of guys that, uh, once again, me and Kurt were talking about this the other day, you see a lot of guys and, and girls that, that self-medicate, whether it be through, you know, uh, p- uh, prescription pills or, you know, illegal drugs or even just alcohol. And you have to, you have to not do that, obviously, because especially with the alcohol and drugs, you're, you're already in a depressed state. And when you take things that are depressants, you're just compounding the problem. And when that high wears off, the problems are still there. Now, I know, Kurt, we had talked about this before, but, you know, you told your story about the mass casualty stuff and we didn't really highlight the the coping. How has it uh, affected your life overall as far as an additional stressor in your life? And were you able to cope with it, you know, come, come to some kind of conclusion in your mind and, and get over it? Or did it, has it always kind of affected you? You know, it's interesting that, that we're talking about this, uh, you know, like Kevin brought up earlier, he and I had a conversation the other night about post-traumatic stress disorder and all the different conversations that are going on right now in military circles, first responder circles um, about, you know, folks uh, committing suicide, the effects of all this stuff, right? Um, each person is different. It affects people differently. I think the important takeaway is like Kevin's talking about is understanding that uh, everybody is human. There is going to be an effect. Uh, what that effect is on you uh, is going to be different based off of a lot of different factors, right? Your genetic makeup, uh, what you're uh, potentially have been exposed to in the past, just a lot of different things. But for me personally, that experience, um, I kind of looked at that and then, you know, it was a sad deal. You know, guys uh, passing away in a vehicle accident in combat is obviously uh, a sad deal. Uh, it's one thing to die for your country fighting, uh, but riding in the back of an LMTV and dying, going to a change of command. I think that's the part of it that never sat well with me. But as far as coping with that and seeing that, I kind of feel like the experience itself going through another, well, that happened in 2003. So another 14, 15 years of service, I would see other people, unfortunately, pass uh, in combat situations and 
you know, it didn't affect me negatively. I've always looked at all those experiences and those guys that have given their lives for our country, told myself I was lucky enough to live and I'm going to make every or take every opportunity that I have um, and, and live a full life. That's a, that's a really good perspective. And, you know, we just talk about vehicle accidents and, you know, our old team, Sergeant Walker Booth, you know, I was behind him and his wife, Dawn, when they were in a motorcycle accident. You know, I think about that date, which is actually coming up soon. It's something that's always affected my life, but not in a negative way. And I, I remember the actual, the events that unfolded. And I've always carried an IFAC, uh, a kit inside my my vehicle, whether it was a first aid kit or a, you know, even a, on a, in a small form factor, something. And, I, you know, I always thought to myself, what if something happens? And it just so happened that I was behind him um, when they were struck by a vehicle. And I actually did a lot of things that I learned in training. You know, I threw a tourniquet on him. Uh, I actually needled his chest, put a chest seal on him. It, definitive technical things that I think that helped him overall. Unfortunately, both of them passed away and perished. But the lessons that I took away from that moving forward in life and, and more so in, in combat stuck with me, whether it was mindset or the technical skills or just giving a shit about this field and this, ex, this field of expertise that's important for everybody. Again, I appreciate you guys' perspective because this is the kind of stuff, you know, Kurt had mentioned it last time that people don't want to focus on because it's not as cool. You can't post a picture and get a thousand likes on Instagram of you doing combat casualty care because it's not as cool as holding a gun. But this is the kind of information saving lives that is going to save your life as opposed to taking lives, which in combat is the easy part. Closing out, uh, we'll go around the horn and, you know, I'll just give you guys' closing statements and then also giving you guys Instagram, you know, social media handles, and then how people can get in contact with you if they want to contact you. So start with you, Kev. All right. So um, in social media for Facebook, it's Devil Dog Consulting. Uh, Instagram's at Devil Dog Consult because they wouldn't let me put the ING on the end. So it's just Devil Dog Consult. Um, And in the area of traumatic stress, my dad actually has a PhD in counseling and uh, and does a lot with PTSD with veterans and first responders. He also has a website. It's thecrisisdoctor.com, and it has a lot of good information on there dealing with PTSD as well. Speaking about that, we're actually going to have your dad on an episode on a podcast where we talk about dealing with stress and PTSD. So look forward to doing that. I've actually talked to your dad. He's a yes. great, great guy. Better than you. Way better than you. Yeah. <laughs> way smarter. Way yeah, smarter for than sure. you. All right, Kurt, you want to close out? Yeah. So uh, you can find me at social media, Kurt underscore team Philcraft, and then also on our Facebook page, Philcraft Survival. Appreciate the opportunity, uh, getting to share my story and uh, letting all of you folks know the three guys that lost their lives that day. Uh, how special they were, obviously, to their families and the guys around them. So I appreciate the opportunity to share their story. Yeah, thanks for sharing, man. And if you guys want to check us out on social media, again, it's philcraftsurvival.com. We're actually under construction right now, being rebuilt. Once that's back up and running, it's philcraftsurvival.com. You can catch us on, uh, like Kurt said, philcraftsurvival on Facebook. My social media is soft survivor, at soft survivor, or at philcraftsurvival. Also, you can check out my service dog, Pearl. She's awesome. The service dog underscore pearl. 
I always plug her page. She's, she's, <laughs> she's tapping me on the foot with her paw, telling me to plug her page. Thanks for, for tuning in, guys. We look forward to the next episode. I think the next episode for, for me is with Kurt doing long gun stuff. So that's going to be an interesting topic. And we'll have Kevin co-located. He's not an expert at any gun, anything that we've seen him <laughs> shoot. He could plug in his humor. He's, he's a funny country dude. So it's, it's all good. So thanks, guys. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.